<laughs> and it's funny because, you know, when I uh, was a professor, some of the things is, you know, do you have, how many people you have in your class I always felt like I had the right number that was supposed to be there. Whoever was interested in the information came to get the information and it was there, theirs to have. So I welcome you guys to come uh, to our session. We are extremely excited to be here. Uh, I'm Dr. Charles Johnson Bay from Booz Allen. This is the how to mobilize your PhD to drive diversity and grow the business. So uh, we're going to be up here. We're, we're going to talk about PhDs, what we do. I know when I was uh, in grad school, I wasn't really sure all the things that you could do with your PhD. So we want to talk about that a little bit and the things that we do in the business. Uh, joining me today, and each will introduce themselves in a second, uh, immediately to my right is Dr. Kalina Stovall and Dr. Christina Leggett and Dr. Sean Guillory. So this session, how to mobilize uh, your PhDs and drive diversity to grow your business. There's a lot of personal and professional reasons why folks strive for the PhD, but a fair generalization is the aim is to change the world for the better. Other fair generalizations are that many PhDs leave academia because they don't find the institution conducive to tangibly change the world and that there is very little guidance on how one can utilize their PhD skill sets in jobs outside of academia. At Booz Allen Hamilton, we have made it a mission to bring together over a thousand doctorate employees uh, to collectively help with the firm's bigger vault strategy. And we're gonna talk about vault, which is velocity, leadership, and technology. And so with that, I am going to just get us started and so first, uh, officially introducing myself, and then we're going to go down the line for each um, each of my, my I'm going to smile the whole time, because I'm just really happy to be up here with this group. We do a lot of things virtually, and uh, it just feels really good to be like in one space, breathing the same air and all of that. So it is it's just uh, really fun. So I'm from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. I work, as I said, I'm a senior vice president at Booz Allen. I came to Booz Allen because I was, Booz Allen is looking to grow its brand in new dimensions, particularly in technology. So I came to help, quite frankly, and I've been here for three years. I'm also a co-principal investigator of an NSF, National Science Foundation funded initiative to help look at what does the United States need to invest in from an engineering perspective for the next uh, 10 or 20 years to get us where we need to be as a country. So that is extremely fun work. And I've had prior experiences before, as you see um, there. I also have been married for 30 years. It'll be 31 years uh, coming this June. I married my, thank you, that's cool. <laughs> I, I literally married uh, my next door neighbor. Uh, we believe that our parents arranged our marriage and just has not have not admitted it yet. Um, but um, and we have three grown children. So, Colleen. All right. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Colleen Stovall. If I can change this. Right, there we go. All right. There we go. Hi, all. I'm Dr. Colleen Stovall. Um, my background is polymer chemistry and chemical engineering. Um, so my PhD is in chemical engineering, but I also have a bachelor's in polymer chemistry. Um, I reside in Atlanta, um, but my but I work for Booz Allen um, here in D.C. Well, yeah, here in D.C. Um, let's see. 
I am a lead associate with Booz Allen, been there a couple of years. Um, I joined the, the firm because I wanted to do something unique and highly impactful, and um, I was hired into a contract that focuses quite heavily on that, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but my, my background at this point has heavily focused on two completely divergent topics, so building materials and construction applications and um, medical devices and drug delivery. So two different uh, paths that have forged, that have shaped my career for the last however many years. Um, let's see, I've been in, in love uh, with jujitsu now for about five dot, years. Dot, dot. We, we have a relationship um, <laughs> and I, I compete. Um, I, it, it really is my second life outside of work. Um, and I've been married to science for about 26 years. I, I fell in love with it in the seventh grade. So there you go. <laughs> That's worth an applause as well. Yeah, and so I'm Christina Leggett. Um, I'm actually from uh, Mississippi, and a fun fact that I think we didn't, you didn't share, Kalina, is that Kalina and I were both in high school together. So, um, <laughs> oh, what, you were going to talk about the latest? Oh, okay. For, <laughs> so it's the funniest thing, like Mississippi-born, like mm -hmm. high school together, hadn't seen each other in years, and we end up back at the same group yep. with the same client yep. at Booz Allen Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So, um, and a week apart, I think couples yeah. apart. So yeah. anyway, um, I'm an associate uh, at Booz Allen, just like Kalina is, and uh, I joined Booz Allen because the strangest thing happened, and I'll talk more about this in my career path, but shortly uh, or briefly, they had a position that was written exactly for me based on my PhD background. It was unbelievable. And I was like, and I had an opportunity to do something impactful using my degree. So that was really exciting. Um, I'm also uh, pretty active in the American Nuclear Society. So I was just elected to the uh, American Nuclear Society Board of Directors. Um, in that role, I, I, oh, thank you. Um, in that role, one of the things I want to do is try to increase diversity in nuclear engineering because um, it is predominantly a white uh, male organization. And I'm also the vice chair of the Fuel Cycle and Waste Management Division, which is the second largest division in ANS. Um, in my spare time, I like to play video games, watch horror movies, and play foosball. Uh, I'm also an avid anime fan, so if anybody wants to talk anime, <laughs> we can talk about that too. And then lastly, I read a lot. So if you're a reader and you have suggestions for, for books to read, uh, or you just want to talk books, um, feel free to do so. And then I just recently won the uh, Modern Day Technology uh, Leader Award, so really excited about that. Um, and then just lastly, uh, I do have a variety of um, experiences all over a reasonably short amount of time um, in industry, academia, and government. So um, this is kind of a testament to things you can do with a PhD, and I'll talk more about that later. Oh, gosh. Me. All right, what did I put up here? Well, my name is Sean Guillory. Um, my PhD is in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, I got it at Dartmouth College. Um, kind of things that... Um, I did, even though it seems like it's been pretty similar jobs with just kind of like different names and different has, but it is different kind of like utilizations of how you can use psychology and neuroscience um, in an applied sense. Um, did that kind of stuff with consumer affairs, uh, catching scammers. It was more in like the Craigslist days, so finding like Craigslist kind of scammers back in the day. Uh, Fruition Technology Labs was kind of my off-ramp out of academia, um, where I did my postdoc at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, in terms of even how that cobbled together, it was kind of like a joint position with neurosurgery, neuroradiology, and um, neuropsychology, um, helping to map functions in neurosurgery patients' brains uh, and finding kind of like new methods uh, to do so. Probably the one I'm most proud about is uh, uh, 
finding ways to map for language even when people are asleep. So yeah, we did some fun stuff there. Um, the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, I did in terms of like also kind of like the automation background, which I think the big thing that, I mean, all of us will probably contribute to that. Like I had no idea that the skill set I accrued in academia and science, like had applicability outside of academia. Like we were doing stuff with like machine learning algorithms on like brain data. I was just like, like, this is actually helpful to people outside? No. So it was really cool to see that. Um, and uh, for the past few years, I guess I kind of made a little mini name for myself in terms of different ways to apply psychology and neuroscience within the defense and national security. And I've been very fortunate um, at Booz Allen to be able to see that kind of come to fruition uh, through kind of like internal funded research, kind of like different kind of tools to fight mis and disinformation. We have like a neurotechnology group. We even kind of do workshops for NATO and army and, um, oh yeah. And like the past few months I also, uh, was elected to the information professional association board. So, um, two weeks, we actually have a big conference in London. So all oh, that you, <laughs> applause, please. Thank you. Uh, and then I guess like, so I have my two little rascals up there too. So yeah, I've been married for, uh, 12 years in terms of how long I've, known Jenny, I just realized that it's gotten to the point where I've known her more in my life than have not. So like we passed it, you know, so, so that's kind of frightening. <laughs> then yeah, those are my two little munchkins right there. Uh, we're expecting all the swag that I just took from downstairs uh, uh, as a concession. So <laughs> that's me. All right. Thank you. So I'm going to start off with, uh, I'm going to start off just with a question for each of you and we'll just go down the line and come there. But each of you, I'd like for you to answer what was your path? You went. You talked about it a little bit, but what was your path uh, to get you where you are today? Okay. Um, I I can start. Okay. All right. So um, I mentioned that uh, my background is polymer chemistry and chemical engineering. I fell in love with science in the in the seventh grade, but. Um, I think you know. I I finished my PhD when the 2008 recession hit. Um, and it was very difficult to find employment. Um, I, I thought I was going to go the academic route, um, opted against that, and decided to go into industry at the advisement of one of my professors. And um, I went to a recruitment fair, and I found that there was nobody recruiting PhDs. Not one company was recruiting PhDs. And then I saw this booth for a company called Exponent, and I'd never heard of it. And I was like, well, I'm just going to take a shot. I walked up to them. I handed them a resume. I said, hey, this is my, you know, I'm Kalina. I've got a polymer chemistry and chemical engineering background. Next thing I knew, I was hired. And I was like, I'm cool with that. <laughs> so figure it out from here. Um, so ultimately, that got me into the world of consulting, which, which showed me um, all the different things you could do. So Exponent, um, similar to Booz, has a lot of PhDs. And Exponent actually hires primarily PhDs. Um, and it's all litigation consulting. So it's very different ah, than a lot of what we do at Booz Allen, which is more government contracts and that sort of thing. Um, but that, that, that opened a world for me, let me see a lot of things, touch a lot of things, do a lot of work with IP litigation and so on and so forth. Um, and then at some point I decided I wanted to do development again and ended up at a minerals company working for a mentor of mine, um, doing new product development there in the building material space. Um, and then I got tired of that and started looking around. And similar to Christina, just happened upon a job posting at, at for Booz Allen Hamilton that literally looked like my resume. And I was like, this is this is uncanny. So, <laughs> so reached out and ended up at Booz Allen. And so that that's my general path. But ultimately, all of these um, all of these opportunities have have really um, 
given me the chance to play with a lot of different fields in the industrial space, to work with government um, contracts, both at Exponent and Booz Allen, um, really spent a lot of time focused on commercialization, and in my case, a lot of intellectual property uh, work um, over the years. So um, yeah, that's the short and, short and skinny of, of my path. Thanks. And so I'll go next. Um, so as I mentioned from the start, I, I'm from Mississippi, right? And I'm a nuclear engineer. And to my knowledge, there's no nuclear engineering program or anything like that in Mississippi. So I figured I should start with kind of how I got into it in the first place. And so I will say that as a kid, I was always interested in science. But I was originally going to go into medicine. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, anesthesiologist, something like that. And so, you know, really, really interested in chemistry, math, also spelling. I was a spelling bee champion. But um, when I got to high school, there was an AP chem. I took AP chemistry, and uh, the teacher had a segment on nuclear chemistry. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of nuclear chemistry. And I was so excited by the fact that splitting the atom led to, to the release of so much energy that could be used to power you know, um, nuclear reactors. Uh, you could also use nuclear science to you know, treat medicine for space propulsion. There's all these really amazing things, um, very dense source of energy. And so I thought, OK, this is, this is cool. And also, the idea, like I was really interested in chemistry, so I ultimately had a, back, a, a bachelor's in chemistry. but um, they, it was the closest thing to alchemy, like transmuting elements, right? So you can actually, you actually can transmute elements. And so when so I went strange. to undergrad, um, my first day of honors chemistry class, uh, I went up to the teacher and I, I told her, a little professor, and I said, I want to study nuclear chemistry. And so she's like, well, you're in luck because we have a famous nuclear chemist right here in our department, right? And so um, that actually started what I call a nuclear chain reaction um, in which, <laughs> so I started doing research um, in that lab, which was a very diverse lab. And that kind of sparked my interest in diversity, like in encouraging diversity in the workplace, in the lab. Um, but I was able to go to the nuclear chemistry summer school. I went to um, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and worked in the nuclear chemistry division. So there's all this nuclear stuff going on. And so I ultimately decided to go to Berkeley uh, which is down a hill from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, uh, to do um, chemistry. And then I ultimately switched to nuclear engineering, where I focused on recycling waste. So when people talk about nuclear power, they say, what about the waste? I say, recycle it. And so when I finished my PhD, I did a short internship, actually in nuclear medicine, right, um, where I looked at positron emission tomography to treat, to, to image, um, not treat, but image, Alzheimer's. So we had a, a famous Alzheimer's uh, expert there. And then I did another postdoc uh, on extracting uranium from seawater. Very good postdoc. Did a lot of publications there. And then after that, I took a fellowship position at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where they focus on ensuring the safe operation and application of civilian nuclear technologies. So I was there for a few years. Then the Department of Energy posted a posting kind of like what, what happened with Kalina, where it was so perfect for me. It was, uh, let me tell you, that was the easiest, easiest interview I've ever done in my life. Like I, it, I checked all the boxes. And so I ended up going there. And shortly after I got to, to the Department of Energy, I saw this posting from Booz Allen Hamilton for someone who understood nuclear fuel reprocessing, which is basically recycling waste. 
And I thought, this has to be a joke. This can't be real. They don't know what nuclear fuel reprocessing means. And so um, it turns out that I was talking to a colleague um, who happened to work for Booz Allen. And I told him, I said, look, I saw this posting. And it's like, is it real? And he's like, I think that's my group. Why don't you work with it? Or why don't, why don't I connect you? And so we connected, and I got hired. And I, I made the transition from government to industry um, for the first time. And uh, it's been really fun, um, very impactful kind of work. So uh, that's sort of my path from academia to government to industry. I'll even give a little bit more in terms of the underhood and maybe even some, I want to say adversary, adversity, but hopefully again, like just tell you this can like be helpful in terms of your journey. Um, my undergraduate is actually in uh, philosophy and linguistics. And it's something where I remember the summer after freshman year, I was with a bunch of folks that, again, I feel like they're clearly smarter than me. Um, we were looking at like the top philosophy programs in the world, like NYU is probably still up there, Cambridge and whatnot. And, but at the end of it, we all just kind of laughed, like, oh, but no one's gonna, you know, look at it because we went to Texas State University, uh, which again, like in terms of like other school size, you know, I think it's 30,000 people now, but it's a small Texas school compared to like UT Austin. Uh, and we just kind of like put the ceiling on ourselves. Um, it wasn't until I met, um, his name's Alan Hine. He's very much emeritus now in terms of at MIT, but he came to visit and I know he was like the brain and, uh, cognitive science department. I was like, that's the kind of stuff I want to do in terms of grad school. Um, and I just asked him, I was like, do they pay attention to anybody from there? He's like, yeah, you just need, um, do as much research as you can, try to get it published and then like have like three dynamite recommendations. I'm like, okay, Alan, I'm going to take you to the bank on that. Very next day, I went to the psychology department, just knocked on doors and was like, uh, okay, like never took a stats class, never took, you know, like a psychology class. So this is the kind of stuff I want to do, kind of be in your lab, you know, a lot, not uh, closing the doors, but uh, a Dr. Rako Graham, like, all right, kid, let's see what you got. And she was quite the sensei. Uh, even when I was just like, man, what is happening to me? Like, I'd hear other professors like, oh, this kid doesn't realize how lucky he is. Really? Because I'm feeling like I'm getting tortured here. Um, but Dr. Rako Graham, again, really showed me what I need to do in terms of like getting to grad school. And one of the things that uh, I did, she did not tell me, but she's like, yeah, you need to start like reaching out to grad schools now. Yeah, I kid you not. This is going to be like a, I mentioned this because this is going to be uh, kind of a recurring thing, but I promise this won't be, take too long. There was like two Wikipedia pages of all the psychology programs in the world and all the neuroscience programs in the world. It took me maybe four or five months to go through every single page, check out every single faculty page, and anybody that was in ballpark of those interested in, I emailed them. Kind of boilerplate, like, are you looking for anybody this year? And, you know, no offense if you're on sabbatical. This is the kind of stuff I'm into. What do you look for in grad student? I did that, got emails back. You know, emails eventually turned to phone call. Phone calls turned into all right, like you're gonna be at this conference, I'll be there too. Okay, you're less than 500 miles driving distance, I'll drive there. Um, until eventually when I applied to eight schools, I got into seven in terms of like graduate. Um, and then I ended up choosing Dartmouth and MIT was one of them. Like I said, they're, they're actually helpful in a lot of ways. I feel like I kind of stabbed them the back a little bit. That's you know neither here nor there, but Dartmouth really was just like, it was just this little school with a lot of money that, you know, had a lot of the opportunities that I was looking for. And uh, the person I ended up um, working for, uh, very hands-off, he just kind of let me do what I want. And a lot of the things I wanted to do, 
um, had me, um, one, I reached out to the hospital there, Dartmouth Hitchcock, um, very discouraged in terms of folks in my department. They're like, oh, build this let you even do it. I'm like, okay, yeah, well, I was just very fortunate to meet um, a new behavioral neurologist, uh, Christoph Bujarski, who wanted to do kind of like social and emotional kind of research in neurosurgery patients. I was like, yeah, I can help out on the uh, neuroscience side and uh, he'll help out on that. It was, really was a match. He was a true mentor of me, even if we couldn't make it official. And in terms of, again, like reaching out for like a postdoc, I had one lined up at the Bear Neurological Institute in Phoenix. Then 2013, a little thing called the sequestration happened and all kind of government funding just like dried up. So what I have to do, I hit the phones because with neurosurgeons, you're not going to get them on emails. You got to get them on the phones. I talked to at least 100 neurosurgeons around the world until uh, at um, MD Anderson, they kind of cobbled up money to do that. And again, I'm just mentioning all these things because a lot of these sort of things, even the kind of interests I'm in, it had me uh, really put myself, as much as I'm talking right now, I really do consider myself an introvert, believe it or not. Uh, but it had me kind of reaching out, um, knowing what I really wanted to do, knowing how it was going to help people, um, and just put myself out there. Um, well, all these things I'm saying, yes, there was 99 no's attached to it. So it's one of those things, even if you have a PhD, I promise it's not one of those things where they're like knocking down the doors to kind of get you. You really kind of have to put yourself out there. Um, so... Eventually did that in terms of MD Anderson for my postdoc. The kind of things that um, I wanted to do to help felt like there was kind of a lot of red tape versus I would see some of the things in terms of like the Medtronics and Strikers and those kind of like uh, industry folks, kind of the proverbial red tape lifted up. But I wasn't jealous. I'm like, all right, what's this all about? Until I kind of got into cahoots with the VC angel and, the, you know, and that's where I kind of saw that my skill set was still helpful outside of academia because I had no idea. And if it's one of those things where you feel like, oh, okay, like if it feels like your professors or whatnot aren't telling you what you can do outside of academia, I promise it's not like a collusion thing to be like, oh, they just really don't know. Because if they're in academia, they're in academia because they rocked and rolled in academia and they never knew what was outside. And they never had to look outside. Yeah. So they just really don't know. Yeah. So again, it's no offense, but again, like that, that's why I think it was, they weren't so helpful in terms of like, uh, in terms of grads departments and in a lot of ways, unfortunately still not. Um, so I was really fortunate in terms of meeting folks that were, you know, saw my skill set and saw it was going to be helpful. That kind of got me more into, and funny enough, um, probably everybody here knows what data scientist was at a job interview at consumer affairs. They, I went there and they had to explain to me what data scientist was. And I was like, Oh, okay. You use Python, like a big calculator. I can do that. Um, so that was kind of like, yeah, so again, weird enough that shows you again how naive I was. Um, so I did that. Uh, I did a lot of stuff. Um, like I said catching scammers and then helping out with uh, like sales strategy, which I had a ball with that because uh, I realized sales was pretty much like psychology with a scoreboard. I'm like, okay, this is actually fun as heck. Um, so I really kind of, like, you know, get that. Um, I'll tell the last bit in terms of like how I reached out to do more like defense and national security. Um I came across this book called The Psychology of uh, Intelligence Analysis, a real old, like now public manuscript uh, by this old CIA agent uh, that showed how cognitive science could be helpful within defense and nationals. Um, for intelligence analysts, that kind of help find and mitigate their biases. I'm like, okay, that's even stuff that I think is missing in data science. So I reached out to um, folks that kind of do that work. And again, like, I was like, all right, I don't have a clearance or anything, but they found a way um, in terms of me getting that work and that moved me into cybersecurity work until now I'm doing what they call cognitive security, cognitive warfare, 
kind of related things. Um, and really in terms of that Booz Allen, uh, again, looked around, there's none of that. Folks like CJ has been an excellent mentor to me in terms of helping build up programs and build up things around that. Uh, so again, like I'm trying to do the same thing at Booz Allen. So um, I hope to get to the point where other folks who are interested in that will have like Christina and Kalina, hey, that's the job I've been looking for. Um, so I've always tried to do it. I'm like, all right, I, I try to almost be like the mentor I wish I had. And I try to, again, like, all right, I'm going to have to be the one to, like, set up the door, set up the table for those kind of future things. But um, you can do it. Yeah. Even if there is nothing that you feel like you fit into, you, you can do it. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. That's beautiful. Yeah, just make it happen. So thank you. So thank you, three. So as you can see, you know, we have three very different stories. And, and I don't think that it's a straight line to get there, oh, uh, to get anywhere. <laughs> so I think uh, so we can share that. So, so Kalina, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I, Kalina and I have been working together and talking for a good while. But talk to us and share with the audience a little bit. How does Booz Allen uniquely leverage our PhD Oh, Booz Allen, actually. So I really have to give Booz Allen props. I think it does an amazing job in that department. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things that, you know, people, companies will value in PhDs is um, the ability to be sort of self-starters, critical thinkers. And yes, you can be one without a PhD, but th there's the training that comes with it when you actually chase a PhD. Um, and being able to have the space um, to try and and be go above and beyond in terms of creativity, to be a forward thinker, a thought leader. That's one of the things that Booz Allen encourages. Um, so we have a number of opportunities through Booz Allen to actually do that through um, like technology um, groups. Um, we also have our brain trust, which we're gonna talk about a little bit later. There's a PhD brain trust that uh, Booz Allen has come up with to really leverage the idea of being forward thought, leader, forward thought leaders coming up with the ideas for the future. What's the next generation of technology and everything that's needed? Really seeing what's necessary and, and seeing how we can go ahead and, and drive those innovations forward and make sure that we are the thought leaders who, who people come to um, for, for that information, for that technology, for that creativity. Um, but yeah, but, but Booz Allen actually provides the infrastructure for us to do that. And I think that that's the key. Yeah. Very good. So, why don't we actually i'm gonna we're gonna skip a little bit uh -oh. i'm gonna going? i'm gonna hit the because you mentioned the phd road. brain trust so mm -hmm. it might be a good point um and when she said booze allen started the phd brain trust she really means her and sean and a little bit of guidance <laughs> from from myself so uh can you guys and it is also sponsored by our african-american network it sure is so mm -hmm. that's the thing that uh, we pull together to help make this uh this happen so can you two talk a little bit about the PhD Brain Trust and then um, just let us know what that, let people know what that is and why it's important. How it even came about was we're like, goodness gracious again, like how do we get um, more PhDs, not just a booze out, but just in terms of again, like looking at things in terms of like national security and defense. And then we kind of realized, looking at like, holy cow, I actually got a lot of PhDs mm -hmm. here. Uh, yeah. Like, so, you know, we, we, we got them out of there, you know, different caddy quarters. And we're like, all right, what can we do in terms of together? Um, with the main mission being around um, helping out with innovation. Um, because with Booz Allen, 
And for a lot of folks that kind of just know Booz Allen, we're traditionally known as in terms of like, okay, if you need a person with expertise in whatever kind of federal organization, we're there to be like that person to do it. Mm -hmm. But we are trying to explore more in terms of, all right, um, make more in terms of technology. It could be software. We're really trying to ramp up in terms of AI and quantum. And then uh, as CJ likes to say, build more stuff that you can hit with a hammer. Um, and that is something that's a little bit um, different for us in terms of some of our planning, because if it's something where, say you're doing for like the consulting, if you wait until like the proposal or the request for a proposal comes out and you're just looking for expertise, you could start then. You're like, okay, I'll find these people. But if you start your innovation at that, you are so far behind, it's ridiculous. So we've been trying to kind of build that culture of, okay, let's think of the problems even like five years in advance and what are those going to look like and liaisoning with those kind of experts. Mm -hmm. So our kind of approach so far has been, one, bringing in all the um, PhDs and, again, anybody that really has a mentality of, okay, we're going to roll up our sleeves and get going and get building um, in the firm while connecting them with very high-end folks within like our different kind of government space and these folks come in and they'll be like, we ask them like, all right, what are your PhD level hard questions? And they'll tell us. And that really opens up a lot of magic. Um, so yeah, uh, with that, like I said, I'll give it for the overview and then like Kalina or like, she's been yeah. a bunch too. Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So yeah. No, that's a, that's a good intro, Sean. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the PhD brain trust really, as Sean said, it's, it's basically the, the, the house for all of Booz Allen's PhDs to really come and, and bring their greatest levels of creativity with, with the future in mind. Um, so like Sean said, we do bring in external you know, people to just tell us what's, what's the biggest challenge you're facing. Um, and that gives us an opportunity to really, um, to take a look at, those behind, look at those challenges behind the scenes and what we can do. And like Sean mentioned, you know, we, we really look for people who are, are interested in being self-starters, rolling mm -hmm. up their sleeves and mm -hmm. saying, I'm willing to, to work on this thing. Our goal is not to match, um, match like, you know, resume with, with activity. It's really to create the space for people to step outside their comfort zone mm -hmm. and do something new, do something big. Um, that's our goal. So our brain trust has been around for about a year and some change now. Yeah, man. Yep, we're, yep. We're doing stuff. We, we, have goals. <laughs> we have goals for next year to that's kick some right. more behinds yeah. and uh, take some more names. So yeah. It's going to be good. Yeah. So thank you to, all right, Christina, you know what's coming, but let me, I'm, I'm going to ask you, you're going to get two questions, but I'm asking one at a time. All right, that's fine. So my, <laughs> my first one is, how do we get more people interested in getting their PhDs? Oh yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. Um, I think the number one thing you can do is tell your story, right? So I give seminars at universities and other locations um, about you know, my field and uh, the impact that it can have on fighting climate change and just, you know, revolutionizing technology around the world. But whenever I go and I give these seminars, I always request to have a moment to meet with the students. That I love meeting with students, as some students in here may know. <laughs> um, but I love meeting with them and, and talking about my career path. And I think it it does several things, right? It encourages people who may not be considering a PhD to, to do it because I talk about all the different things that I've had a chance to do using my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, it also, um, in some cases, well, yeah, I think that's the main thing. It, it encourages students to, to do that. Um, it also gives them confidence to do it too, right? So it's not, it's not just about 
you know, um, all the things you can do, but also about the experience itself as a graduate student. And so um, another thing that it, it does is it allows you to potentially find men mentors. So I'm actually mentoring a student who is um, from a different university. Uh, she's from the University of Tennessee. And she actually came up to me after one of my seminars and was like, you know what, you're really motivating and I want to learn from you and see if you can uh, like ask you to help me you know, pet, carve out my career. And so um, I'd say that's another thing that you can do. Um, let's see, I had a list. Hold on, I think I have a couple of other things. <laughs> yeah, so mentoring, I like to mentor students. Um, also, you know, I mentioned telling your story, talking about um, your experience, uh, and just the, the practical aspects of it, right? So I, I can say that I, you know, I didn't grow up with much money, and so um, I had no idea, like I had to kind of carve my own path to get a PhD. And some people think that, you know, a PhD takes a long time, it's really expensive, it's, you know, I might be the only person. And so if you just talk to people about, um, you know, financial aid opportunities, about scholarships, about, you know, organizations that are there to support you, I think that's another thing um, that really helps. And so I always adv uh, advocate for that. And I think that's really important, especially for people who are professors, for example, going out and trying to recruit mm -hmm. graduate students, they should definitely talk about that because um, especially if you're kind of a low-income person like I was, I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to pay for yeah, this? Because I can tell you that studies uh, show that, you know, people will go out and just get a job because they want to get paid. You know, going, going to grad school sounds like more years of no money. And, and so you really need to kind of talk about that um, as, as well. Um, the other thing is if you want to recruit people, um, I always recommend going to conferences actually like BEA. I, I didn't know about BEA until I won a BEA award, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but, but it's now on my list of conferences to go to to do recruitment um, for you know, Booz Allen, but also like, if, again, if you're a professor looking for students, that's where you go because you're gonna, if you're looking at increasing diversity in these programs, which is something I'm really uh, interested in, you go to conferences like this, you go to SACNAS if you're interested in recruiting, you know, Native Americans, Chicanos, Latinos, uh, you know, Hispanic, Hispanic Society um, of Black Physicists, uh, Nobache, National Organization for Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers. Yeah, yeah. So that's where you go to meet the broadest range of people uh, to encourage them to go into your program. Um, and then also just talk about the diversity of options uh, that you have. I think uh, we have a question later on about that, but there's so much that you can do for a PhD. And I think a lot of times people think, you know, PhDs are just professors. And there's just so much more from that. So I'll probably talk about that more later, but those are the, the things I'll start with for now. So my second question is, um, so, so one, Christine, I will say that you certainly have a deep interest in nuclear engineering technology. Uh, Christina and I meet typically, we, you know, every Monday for about two hours uh, to talk about uh, this paper that you've been mm -hmm. working on. So I want you, could you talk a little bit about that paper and why folks here might find it interesting? Yes, I'm really excited about this paper that CJ and I are working on. Um, and we're also going to socialize it at a, at a BlurredCon conference, hopefully. But um, so you guys have all seen, I'm sure most of you have seen Black Panther or even the, the new movie, right? Okay, so I don't know about you, but it was really motivating and exciting to see, it's fictitious, you know, Black 
country, Wakanda, that is highly technologically advanced, you know, self-sufficient, energy independence, uh, you know, able to help other countries, right? And so, you know, when I met CJ, we were talking about, like, I'm like, you know, I am interested in, in nuclear, especially in Africa, um, right? Because they don't have reliable electricity in, in, in several of the countries. And we all know that electricity, like reliable 24-hour electricity, and those countries that have that have much higher GDPs. Um, people are more willing to partner with them, invest with them, mm -hmm. have better, um, you know, education, economies, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're like, okay, so what if, like what would a modern, like a real-life Wakanda look like? And so this paper is actually talking about what a potential Wakanda could be like in Africa and ways in which you could try to accomplish that. And so I think that in order to do that, nuclear power can play an especially large role because um, especially if you're interested in, in, in climate change and, and looking at CO2 reductions, um, you know, historically countries have gone through fossil fuels to get to the point at which they are today with you know reliable 24-hour electricity and so i think that in africa where there's still a lot of reliance on biomass and and you know kerosene things like that they can kind of leapfrog that and implement clean energies from the start and skip the you know torturous path that we've taken throughout history to get to where we are right and so there are a lot of benefits that can come from just starting with that reliable, secure, economic, safe real energy foundation. So that, so that's what the paper is. It's more mostly a thought paper, but just like reimagining uh, Africa as a continent, as a place in which there's it's it's modern. There's there's technology. I mean, when you, I, I hate to say it, but the stereotype is when you think about African countries. Much to my dismay, it's oh, there are starving children in Africa, let's bring them aid, you know? Like, how many major companies have, you know, headquarters in African countries other than South Africa? Like, I want to see that change. And so this paper is intended to get people to start thinking differently about Africa um, and, and partner with them, much like we did with Korea, with Japan. Look where they are today because of our help, right? So change the way that you work with African nations. And so anyway, this paper is supposed to start uh, going down that path. I'm happy to talk about that more. <laughs> so thank you. A little All passionate right, about that. Oh, good good <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah. Let we me check to. on that because, you know, they also have, I, I saw something like that, and I don't know if this is the same thing, but, but if it, I would love to look at that, and that could be helpful yeah, yeah, for the paper fun. because I, I've seen their energy plans, but I haven't seen that one. So that is one of the focal points of the paper. <laughs> of course I am. <laughs> That's right, that's right. And people were also looking at it for like, you know, powering the Bitcoin stuff and uh, just, old, I mean, there's so many applications of advanced nuclear technology, but yeah, not only that, but also like emergency power for let's say a, an, a, an island that's lost power during a, 20, a hurricane. Geothermal. geothermal. Yeah, yeah, that's geothermal. And that's also really cool. I worked a little bit on that too, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So that's that's kind of the point. Is I, I think small modular reactors, especially when you you have um, you know people out in remote areas, that that's where I think that could could help. And so really, what we're looking at is strategic implementation of nuclear and possibly renewables as well. I mean, um, I don't see any problem with wind and solar if it's implemented intelligently. Hi everyone, Dr. Malika Grayson, Northrop Grumman. And I have a quick question. You talked about the brain trust. 
um, and you started it within the African-American, I think your employer resource group, affinity yeah. group. Yeah. Uh, today we heard about digital tran transformation, diversity of thought, innovation through diversity. So what are the plans to move it from or expand it from the affinity group to, of course, touching the broader Booz Allen? Okay, so um, when we set up the Brain Trust, uh, one of the first things that, that we discussed and I was pretty adamant about was that we didn't want it to be an African-American Brain Trust or an ethnic or a gender, nothing like that. The goal was to capture the PhDs. Um, the the, the African-American Network serves as the um, sort of, I guess, the... Sponsor. Thank you, the sponsor for the effort. But we are intentional about saying, come PhDs. Um, we want that. We just want everybody from the beginning. Um, so, so really, it's it's our it's our effort to strategically let them know that yes, our African American PhDs are interested. Mm -hmm. We are invested, and we we are here to support and drive it forward. But it's it's never been anything but the PhD brain trust. Yeah, and part of this was that, and we were purposeful about this because yes. you know the leader of our African American network is here, right. Ebony, who is fantastic people. And, uh, but the, the purpose, because you know, in a lot of the BRGs uh, within companies, you know, the question is, what is the value that you're bringing to the company, et cetera, et cetera. So this is part of the value that the African-American network is exactly. bringing to the business. Yes. So everybody's involved, all thousand plus PhDs, and you don't even have to have your PhD, but if you're an expert in the field, because what we're looking at is PhD hard problems that our clients are facing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is part of our gift to the firm and part of our value to the firm is to do this. And we were very purposeful about having this come from the African-American network. Yes. Yeah. I'd probably say like the last little bit is even the kind of plans we have coming into this uh, next fiscal year, um, do stuff that very much aligned with Booz Allen as a whole has a Volt strategy uh, with the goal to get us from $8 billion of revenue to $20 billion of revenue. There's things that we are purposely doing to drive that revenue. So that'll kind of take us uh, from the dollars. We want to point, here's the dollars that we help bring in yeah. because we're here. Yeah. And it just so happens that we're all you know, this yeah. is who we are. <laughs> Can I just add one Should thing? Should not be a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I just want to add one thing. So, um, you know, uh, I, I've been kind of tangentially involved with the brain trust where possible, lending my nerdy nuclear expertise where possible. But um, I do want to say, you know, I know we've talked about, you know, leveraging that brain trust to, you know, solve, I guess, external um, challenges, right? But it's also been very beneficial even immediately within Booz Allen. Um, we had one person uh, who joined or got involved with the Brain Trust who actually, you know, we said, oh, hey, you know what? You would be great for this client to help, you know, work on their program to solve an energy problem. And so we were able to pull her over. The next yeah. day, we we're like, hey, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, you came. <laughs> so, so it's been beneficial within the firm, you know, as far as existing products, projects, as well as going after yeah. additional um, client capture. It so. definitely has. I actually have a quick, actually a couple of questions. One's a, one's a little bit of a more in-depth question. Go the on. other one's just a really quick question for Christina, actually. Um, what advice would you give if you wanted to institute something like the Brain Trust that your 
at your organization. I I work for um, Navy Sea Systems Command in okay. Port Wyanimi, and there are about I from last I checked nine PhDs, including me, in the at least at that specific command, not in NAPC as a whole. Mm -hmm. But and wondering how I could how, if it's possible to like break bring the, them all together and other people who are kind of in that research mind with that research mind to solve some of the Navy's problems. So we'll help you. So you contact me directly either on LinkedIn or I'll give you my number after here and I will come help you. We will come help you. I'm, I'm, I run the uh, largest uh, sub account within our Navy business uh, today. So I know you guys are our clients in there somewhere, but even if you weren't, the fact of the matter is, uh, I think this is the right thing to do. So yeah, we will, we will help you. So that's a, that's a check. That's a yes. Hit me up. Um, we will help you make that happen. Even if it's something where like, okay, like we'll set up the means like within Boobs Island, like, you know, kind of where we bring other external folks, like we'll, we'll find a space and we can find something to kind of like help that out. So yeah, even try to help out our clients in that kind of regard. Um, yeah. So we actually, we could even invite you to speak exactly. and say, Hey, this yeah. is what we'd like and, and invite your, the nine, the other nine people. Mm -hmm. We can have a whole session on that to talk about it and then talk about what we could do that. Yeah. That could happen next week. Yeah, I could be. Well, yeah, the week after. I'll be in San Diego. <laughs> no, I'm, be, I'm, I'm leaving here to go to San Diego oh, okay, for, yeah. for uh, you know, nine yeah, weeks. But, uh, but yeah, we can do that in two weeks. Yeah. Um, and also, if you if you just want some some general guidance on how to how to get that going, um, happy to talk offline further. Yeah. Okay. Oh, did you have one qu yeah, another question? Yeah. Or you yeah. Yeah. Just the re the really quick question. Um, Favorite video game, book, and anime. Oh. <laughs> that's that's, that's going to be a long that's one. That's a hard one. We had that question yesterday. We were at lunch, that's, and they were like, I, I, was, I was actually at lunch with a bunch of people who love anime. And so they're like, what's your favorite anime? And we're all like, I don't know. Like, that's a hard one, right? Um, I can say a really good one's Death Note, if you haven't seen that. Yeah, um, my wife's favorite. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> One Punch Man is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I have to think, like, what is my favorite? Um, I, I'd, I'd also want to know what your favorite is so I can see if I can check that out. Um, let's see, favorite books. I, I tend to look at favorite books based on how many times I've read them. And let's see, I've read Jane Eyre several times, so I guess that has to be on the list. And I've also read a bunch of Codex Alera books by Jim Butcher. So um, I think I've read those more than, than any other book. So I'd have to classify that as my favorite. Um, again, similarly with video games, uh, there's an old game called Fantasy Star that came out in Sega Genesis. Sega for life, all right? So um, I've played that, I don't know, at least 100 times. Uh, I'm playing it even now, even though it's old. Yeah, so I really like that game. I like Japanese role-playing games. That, that's the point. And so I've played, like, most of them. So if you play JRPGs, happy to come talk to you about that. So I play a lot of those. Um, and I've recently gotten into Western um, RPGs. So, mm. you know, like the Elder Scrolls series, things like that. So, yeah. Right, very nice. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you can ask me, have you seen Demon Slayer? <laughs> Blue Exorcist.
I don't know. Um, I, you know, my dad would always watch it. I remember they would watch Dragon Ball Z all the time, and I never really watched that. But apparently, the, the story is actually more uh, mature than you think it is. It's not just, oh, let's fight every, every game. You know, so there's a real story behind that, and I, I haven't checked it out. But I think there was that, also the fact that I played Japanese role-playing games. And um, yeah, I think those were the two things. Because we watched, uh, like, there was something called Vampire Hunter D that I watched when I was a kid. I also have friends who really liked anime, and they would say, hey, go watch Death Note, go watch Attack on Titan. And so I just kind of started watching that, and then Hulu and Netflix would just suggest more, and I just kept watching it. So I've seen a lot of anime right by now. So yeah, it's a funny question. <laughs> go ahead. Just so, as I said, uh, my name's Drew Valentine from IBM, and I was, real, I was interested, something I talk a lot to PhDs about is, how, do you, how have you transitioned? I was trying to determine from your jobs from being a creator versus a business driver. Yeah. You know, somebody who's driving revenue or P&L or however you look at it, Boost. How did you, how, or even have you? I couldn't tell by your jobs. Or going from a creator to a business driver. I can give a small, I'll give it. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not at CJ level business driver, <laughs> but I can tell you from, you know, just the stepwise um, piece of that. So I think industry is a huge part of it, but, um, um, so I'm just going to mention two things. One is the idea of startups. There are a ton of funding. Thank you. There are a ton of funding opportunities really? these days through um, PhD research, where people can, um, students and professors can get funding for commercial-focused efforts, development efforts. Um, things like break, breakthrough energy fellows would help you know students follow up with um, with uh, ways to build their startups, do market analysis, all of that stuff. How do you from okay yeah 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 sorry okay so when I was at when I was at Emirates um, I came in as an R and D scientist but I was coming into a new market segment where they needed assistance trying to build that segment so I got a chance to work with a commercialization team to actually build that I'm gonna keep it that short pass that on well but the other but talk about how you're helping your client RPE today. Do their commercialization. Um, that's true too. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I do, yeah. in my uh, role with Booz Allen right now, part of what we do is exactly what I was talking about before with with um, new technologies is actually helping them towards commercialization. So what I do is I help them understand what does their market look like. They they don't necessarily know how to do that market research. Some may, but um, but I work with tech to market advisors who are people who come from the business world mm -hmm. um, and try and help them understand market challenges, understand what those uh, barriers might be from a regulatory perspective and all. But the point is that it's all exposure focused, right? So that's why I mentioned the previous role. So in the previous role, I got that exposure to, oh yeah, there's regulatory concerns that we need to pay attention to. Oh, there's market drivers that we yeah. need to pay attention to took that and pushed it into my current role. So I remember, because like I said, I got into grad school in terms of like all this, I didn't even know what the word networking is. I did that a lot in terms of, uh, I was just the person they're like, hey, who's that person in that lab? And I just kind of like knew. Um, and I remember even somebody in my committee is like, I don't know what that's called, but like keep it. Um, so even when I talked about like, okay, I don't have, uh, like, you know, I have to do a lot of the setting up. The beauty of that is, say, like, with that IPA position, um, I'm literally setting up the conference that has uh, Office of Secretary of Defense and the UK Ministry of Defense uh, involved. So even organizing uh, these up to three-star generals um, into together, all these folks in terms of industry, I, I'm able to connect with that 
obviously on the Booz Allen end, they're going to be very interested in that. We had a new lieutenant general that just, he was in charge of Army Cyber, reach out to me and be like, hey, can I go talk at this conference? So that's the kind of way that I'm able to kind of like, because, you know, we literally have other uh, vendors and whatnot there as well. So be it from like these board positions and then again, that weird thing called networking, I really know is helpful. Um, it's been helpful in terms of with Booz Allen connecting folks, uh, which again, on the Booz Allen end, it's, it's trying to show Booz Allen, hey, this is a field that these people kind of care about and are willing to put in money. And that kind of leads to again, like business and opportunity. Um, so, so yeah, and like I said, uh, from wherever they want, you know, I just have to know how to like create it or build the team to create it. Um, so yeah, I guess I kind of took it the weird way where I always had that kind of like networking about it um, and it being helpful. I didn't know how that was going to be helpful in the future. So yeah. I just want to add to this. I think that's a great question. Um, so remember how I told you in my career journey, I said, hey, I, I shortly, I briefly worked at the Department of Energy where I was basically a program director mm -hmm. managing multi-million dollar programs in uh, recycling technologies. Like how do you recycle nuclear waste, right? And so multi-million dollars, five million basically, right? <laughs> Which was a lot considering. But one of the frustrations I had was that we were basically doing research just so that we can maintain the capability and developing, oh, sure. look, we've got a new way of separating plutonium from uranium. And it's like, and then we put it on the shelf. And do you know what happens when the US pours millions of dollars into developing these R&D technologies and sending it on the shelf? Other countries take it and commercialize it. And so when I saw this job posting that, like I said, I thought it was a farce because I was like, there's no <laughs> way they mean the actual nuclear reprocessing that I do, right? I saw an opportunity to take my experience in the regulatory space because I actually worked on reprocessing regulations, right? So recycling regulations. And finally, take this, stop like doing research for research's sake and get it out the door already. And so I gladly took the job with Booz Allen supporting, uh, the, the organization is called Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy. So it's, it's DOE's version of DARPA. And uh, so what we do now is, like Kalina said, we work together in, in the same organization. Uh, we work with tech to market advisors and that's kind of helped me learn a lot about the technology components, but I also contribute the regulatory considerations. Um, and this is really important because you have some of the people that we fund are at universities or even, they may even be small businesses, but they have no idea how to get out of the R&D, the, the R mode and go into D and yeah. ultimately to commercialization. Yeah. So we really help them with that, yeah. help them think differently about the technologies that they're developing, right? Um, and so that's just yeah. been really, really fun for me, so. I, I would say just really quickly, just ask. That, that sounds oversimplified, but it's genuine. Um, anywhere, anywhere someone goes, if you want to start to learn how to do it, you literally just let somebody know that you're interested. And nine times yes. out of 10, that's Please how you get in. Please don't be shy. That's it. That's how I got into Fusion. Um. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Any, we have about four minutes left. We have time for one more question, you guys. Yay. Yay, Shenyang. We had heard of, oh. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Hi. So I'm a student at Stony Brook University, Stony Brook. and so my major is chemical engineering, and I'm pursuing masters, but I haven't decided to do 
PhDs, and I've asked like professors and scientists. They're like, "Oh, if you're not passionate about research, like it'll be hard to finish the degree." So that's why I'll be like, I don't know if I should do PhDs or just finish my masters. You remember when I said that my professor、uh, suggested I go into industry? It's because he realized that I got tired of like just continuous, exact same thing all the time. <laughs> and he said, and he was very intentional when he said it to me. He said, you know, I know you've been talking about going into academia, but I really think you're made for industry. And I, I actually felt kind of bad when he said it, but then after a while, I realized he was absolutely right. So you don't have. So I would say, if you're thinking about it, consider your PhD from the perspective of what you would be doing and not what the PhD is, right? So what will I work on? Who will I work for? What kind of project do they have? What's the duration of their funding for the project? If it's like three to five years max, and even so, three years is even better. You <laughs> know, you'll knock that sucker out and move on with your life. You know, so just consider that kind of thing. If it's not really like for you to just dig on something for the next 20 years, it's okay. You can still get a PhD. I'm a living testimony. If you ask any PhD what they got their PhD in and what they're doing today, guarantee you, you will get a different story because we all do different things all over the place. It is not a way to pigeonhole you. You do not have to do just one thing. That's actually one of the reasons why we're having this panel today,、yeah. just to say we all have different experiences. It's all good, you know. And I was a professor before, and I've worked in industry more than I've longer than I've been a professor. So, it's you can do anything you want. You get a PhD to learn your craft. You don't get a PhD for the money. It ain't about、He's、that. You get a PhD to earn to learn your craft. And if you want to learn something and do that, then by all means get your PhD. I will tell you, I learned more about electrical engineering. From being a grad student and going for my PhD, than I did as an undergrad. So I learned once I got it. So that's、yeah. that's my testimony on why you should get it. If you don't want to get it, don't talk to me. If you want to, if you want to <laughs> get it, talk to me. I will talk you into it. And I've got plenty of other people to help you do that too. So with that, we have one minute left. So I'd like to just thank you guys. Thank. You. And thank you all. It was too short. Thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you guys for coming. Please, we are open, so we're around. You can get our bios, yeah, but we love to talk. Reach out. Yeah, come on up. Please reach out. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you all. Yay.